All right, this morning, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter as we continue on looking and moving through this epistle, great epistle, uh, specifically chapter 2, as we look at this, the, we're looking at the dilemma of false teaching. And uh, again, this is going to be moving, I'm not going to in, uh, include everything today, but we'll pick that up the next time. But remember, don't forget where we were and where we're going, because it's about growing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Peter started, and that's the most important thing when it comes to teaching that is aberrant or that is false or that is full of error. We are able, once we know the Word of God, to detect those things. So continual growth in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ will make you more holy and useful. It will make the church as a whole more ready for the coming of Christ. And it also will make the church more discerning in their present situation and in the present situation of any church at any time in history. So this continual growth will take place by a regular exposure to and the transformation of the Word of God upon your mind, upon your affections and upon your will. And, because, and the reason for that is because we ought to be convinced as believers that the Scripture is sure, therefore reliable, that the Scripture is light, therefore illuminating, that the Scripture is truth, therefore revealing, that the Scripture originate not from man but from God, and therefore it is trustworthy. So by the Word of God, you will be more able to detect threats to the church, threats to your own development and thought life as we begin to see what and, and examine what is out there, what we hear all over the place on the Internet, reading in books, on television, and other sources, that, that false prophets are a threat. Uh, they were a threat to the unity and purity of Israel, and false teachers will also be a threat to the unity and purity of the true church. So we see here in Scripture that mingled amongst, even in the Old Testament, true prophets were false prophets. And if you notice in verse number 1, it says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, all right? So the Bible is telling us, listen, don't be surprised when these things happen. They're going to happen. Be ready for them. And that's the point, that we are to be ready for these false teachers to come on the scene. And then how do we get ready? By knowing the truth. That's how we get ready. Now, last time I looked at what is the definition of an Old Testament prophet, and we concluded that an Old Testament prophet and any prophet, whether it's in the New Testament too, the New Testament prophets, all right, they were given direct revelation, and they said, thus said the Lord. That was the main thing that they did. The, the Lord first spoke to the prophet, and then the prophet turns around and speaks to the people. So that's how the prophets operated. And God never gives a word to the prophet for the prophet. The prophet 
always got the word from God and gave it to the people. And sometimes that was he gave it to the king, he gave it to the priest, and sometimes he gave it directly to the people of Israel and Judah. And so God is always speaking to the people through his prophets. So a prophet is a person to whom God gives this gift that whenever there is a need, God speaks directly to that person, the prophet, and then he in turn takes the message to God's people. So the prophecies did not originate in the prophet's own thinking, but from God's mind. And that has to be the major point of what a prophet does. A prophet didn't study to get his message. A prophet got it from God and gave it and then had to study it later on. So the word of God never had its origin in the impulse, the desire, the whim, or the will of men. Never. Now, if a true prophet is one who receives direct revelation from God, then a false prophet is one God has not spoken to, yet that person speaks. They tell the future, but it's not, it doesn't come from God himself. Instead, it comes from themselves. It comes from their own imagination, their own mind. And so we looked also at the threefold description of the prophet's activities. And what were they? Well, uh, they were, number one, they pretend their proclamation is good news, but they avoid the warnings of judgment and replace those warnings with promises of peace and security. They still do that to today. Matter of fact, this passage of Scripture in chapter 2 is part of the job of a pastor and elders to warn the people, right? Not bypass that because it seems like it's negative. No, but to warn the people that these things are going to take place. And it's not peace and security. The judgment of God is coming. That's for sure. And the way to avoid that judgment is through the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus has taken that judgment. And so the gospel becomes paramount. The person of Christ becomes central to the message. A second thing about what prophets' activities are is that there is no divine authority behind their message because they didn't get their message from God. So if the Lord did not send these people to speak on his behalf, then they have no authority. And yet they speak as they do, as, as if they do have authority. When they don't, we have to determine that. And of course, a third thing was that they were condemned by God for their lies, that God did not put up with them. Uh, they were condemned for their lies. And those who were sent by the Lord were to be listened to because they were the true prophets. And those who were not sent by the Lord were not to be listened to, but instead we see in Scripture from last week that they were stoned to death. Now, right here in our text, if you notice in chapter 2, verse number 1 again, it says, just as there will be also false teachers among you, and I I believe that Peter is using the term false teacher uh, because here, and, and the only time it's used here in Scripture uh, is because the Bible is indica- he's indicating in some form uh, that there's no more direct revelation given to man by God. Uh, and, of course, which indicates that there is, uh, 
that we have the full revelation of God in the Old Testament uh, that were given by the writers of the Old Testament that were moved by the Holy Spirit to write and then were given all that we need in the New Testament through the apostles' teaching and doctrine in which the Holy Spirit moved upon them to write so we have a complete Bible. There's nothing God is adding to the Bible. And so what we need to do is study the Bible. The Bible is a big book. There's a lot of things to study. So there is a great danger that faces the church that these false teachers, therefore, are here, and therefore discernment on behalf of God's people is very much needed. We need to know what the Bible teaches. So that led led me to my first major point, and that is the discerning the threats of false teachers to the church. Now, the use of uh, the future tense in verses 1 through 3, will, 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 are, you know, are all very important because they're pointing to the fact that just as false prophets were present in the past, the future arrival of false teachers are now here. They, uh, they are here amongst us. People uh, of God, of course, must be ready for them. And so I began to look at six reasons false teachers are a threat to the church. The first one being in verse number one, it says, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, right? That's the first one. There's seven given in these three verses, and that's the first one that false teachers cleverly teach destructive heresies that these teachers bring in subtle deviations from the truth. Say they, they will actually infiltrate with clever false ideas into different groups and different settings of believers. That means the attack is not necessarily from the outside, but the attack is from the inside of the church. And as I mentioned, uh, what Paul said when he left and he brought together the elders of Ephesus, and he said to them, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. All right? Not sparing the flock. They don't care about the flock. They don't care about the people. They just want to get a following because they're going to carry out their own motives. All right? And we'll find out what that is. And, of course, he said also that from among you, your own selves men will arise. So even from amongst the body of believers, they will rise, speaking perverse things, twisted things that will draw disciples after them. And most of the time, these people are very skilled, many times in language. Uh, they're, they're charismatic. They, they have a magnetism about them. They draw people in. They're friendly. They're uh, very sociable, and, and you know they're very likable, and that's the danger in all this, that those are the people that can gather people around them, but they are always the focus of attention. So, in other words, when they speak, their words do not line up with the Bible. They do not square with the Bible. The term, it says here, secretly, they secretly have an idea that creeps in alongside the truth, uh, under some sort of cover, that these teachers are not necessarily hiding their teaching. Matter of fact, I believe they believe their teaching. They, they believe it, and they're, they're, they're really covering it up. Satan is helping them cover up their teaching uh, to just to 
the degree to which their teaching differs from the apostles' teaching. They're, they're, it's different, but they're getting trying to get as close as possible. So in other words, what they are introducing is not easy always to catch. It is packaged very creatively in Christian lingo and in, in a character that is likable. And However, their teaching does not have a sanctifying effect. But as it says in Scripture, they bring in destructive heresies. It actually has a destructive effect, spiritually destructive. It wants to divide and destroy the church. It wants to lead disciples out of the church. Um, And it wants to prevent people from getting into the church. So the outcome of this false teaching is the eternal loss of fellowship with God. It's like what it says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelieving so that they might see not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, what they introduce is not healthy because their teaching aims at ultimately denying essential doctrines of the Bible, especially that of the person and character of Christ. Uh, the, the Trinity, uh, many in the movement are actually modalists. They are not Trinitarian. Uh, they deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Uh, and of course, that leads to other doctrines that are uh, that come in that are end up being doctrines that get uh, confused and mixed up and twisted, uh, and so people cannot necessarily see uh, what the truth is. So we are to discern who are Christ's real disciples and accept them, but then keep in mind that we are never relieved of our responsibility to discern truth from error, to discern, as the Bible says, the spirits. We must be aware that there are those who really pirate the name of Jesus for evil purposes. And last week I was mentioning, uh, starting to mention the word of faith movement that many thousands and thousands of people are involved with but brethren from that movement there are many false teachers because it breeds false teaching and and both men and women who have a false gospel now they have within their movement certain criticisms criticisms against anyone whether it's in their movement or outside their movement that oppose them and I mentioned the first one last week that whether it's the Word of Faith movement, whether it's the Charismatic movement, whether it's the New Apostolic Reformation movement, the, they have this first thing is that you shouldn't judge anything. Don't judge, right? Doesn't it say in Matthew 7 not to judge? Well, in Matthew 7, it actually says you should judge, but it's how you judge. It means not to judge hypocritically. It's, it's, it's caution when you are judging others and careful when you are judging others and exercising discernment with biblical parameters. That's how we're to judge. And then, of course, First Thessalonians chapter 5, 
which Greg read this morning, says we are to examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. So hold fast to that which is right and true and good and throw out the rest. Now, what are we to test? We are to validate uh, and prove what is genuine, what comes from the Word of God. All right, we, as it says in 1 John 4, 1, which, which we read this morning, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have got, gone out into the world. So we are to teach, we are to examine and test their words. We are to compare their words with the objective standard of judgment that comes from the Bible. And then, of course, we are also to test out their imitations and the deceptions that come along with their teaching, usually backed by the enemy himself, their words, their deeds, their appearance. Because in Matthew 24, 24, again, there's going to be false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders and mislead if possible, even the elect. So we are to expose fraudulent leaders and teachers, whether they're on the radio, TV, Internet, because the speed of communication and the speed of even publishing today is spreading error everywhere, and we have to be ready to know what is true and what is not true. Now, there is a mini uh, kind of like a ministry of evaluation that we can used to test those things, one would be, does the work exalt the true Christ? Another question could be, does it oppose worldliness? A third question could be, does it point people to scriptures? A fourth question could be, does it elevate truth? A fifth question could be, does it produce love for God and love for others? Another question could be, does it produce maturity in Christ? In, in growing in the Lord and adding to your faith? And then does it get the gospel right, which is a big one? Does it get the gospel right? So when we judge, we are to judge doctrine, but we are also to judge behavior. We live in a culture that values autonomy to the point of irrationality. The present-day mindset is we can we can do and should do whatever makes us happy and no one has the right to hold us to any standard but our own. That's the mindset of our day. Now, this is the great sin of the postmodern age, and that's the sin of judging. You have no right to judge me. You have no right to judge what I do, what I say. I can do what I want. But people don't realize that Christians are to judge and they're to do it in the right way. Now, there's a second criticism that goes along with that one, and it's this. The Word of, uh, the word of Faith movement brings up the, the, judge, the criticism is you shouldn't name names. Uh, if you're judged, don't name names. And yet, when you come to the New Testament, what do you find? You find Jesus who is pointing out the scribes and the Pharisees. And what is he saying to them? He, he calls them out, the religious leaders of his day, as hypocrites and blind guys and blind fools and hypocrites clean on the outside but inside full of greed and self-indulgence. Hypocrites like whitewashed tombs, outwardly beautiful but inward 
full of dead people's bones, unclean, full of lawlessness, and you murder the prophets that God sends to you. See, Jesus was direct, and matter of fact, the harshest words that Jesus ever had was to the religious leadership, people who supposed to know the truth and supposed to teach the truth to the people. He came to them with very strong languages and pointed them out before the crowds. We come to the New Testament again, and we, and we hear the Apostle Paul made it clear to point to names that misuse the word of truth and to make sure that you are handling yourself the word of God accurately. Now, you can uh, take your Bible really quick and turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 through 18. He seems to be very pointed in this passage scripture about this whole area of examination of calling out names and pointing things out of people who are doing things that are wrong, saying things that are error, claiming to be someone they're not, claiming to speak for God when they don't. And it says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That's what we ought to be. But look at verse 16. But avoid worldly and empty empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. That's what false teaching leads to, further ungodliness. And verse 17, and their talk will spread like gangrene. What do you do with gangrene? You have to cut it out. You have to get it out of the body or it will kill. It's like cancer. It has to be cut out and destroyed. It has to be fought against and defeated. And then notice what it says in verse 17. Among them is Hymenius and Philetus. Right? So he's naming names. Look what he says in verse 18. Men who have gone astray from the truth. See, there's the danger, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. So he names their name. He names where they went astray, and he names the particular doctrine they went astray in. And so he points them out, and their names are written forever in Scripture. And so we are to name names. Even when you come to uh, other parts of the New Testament, uh, it was, it was uh, Paul who, who pointed out that Alexander the coppersmith did him much harm, and he vigorously opposed the teaching that was coming from God through the apostles to those who were listening And he names his name. He puts him in there. So those who twist the scripture with teaching that leads to further ungodliness must be called out and even called out by name. We must warn about wolves, heretics, false teachers who distort the truth. There's a third criticism that the Word of Faith movement has also and it's not, it's touch not my anointed, using Psalm 105, verse 14 and 15. And Psalm 105, verse 14 and 15 says, He permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do, and do my prophets no harm. And that word, not to touch, really is a Hebrew word that means do not take hold up to harm or to kill. And so that's not necessarily how they 
define it or how they use that passage. They use it so anybody who says anything wrong, you can't question them. Anybody who calls themselves an apostle and or a prophet, you cannot touch them no matter what they do, no matter how they live, no matter what they say. And so that is not what it means um, because here, if they did something wrong and harmed their uh, or true apostle, they were to be killed for it. Um, so they take all these things and they use that to oppose anybody who's against them, whether it's in their movement or outside their movement. So there are dangerous doctrines uh, that in that movement that have to be identified. One of them is the whole doctrine of Jesus spoke to me. Jesus spoke to me. This is a, a, a common uh, cliche even in the whole evangelical church, the Lord told me. Now, when somebody comes up to you and says, the Lord told you something, how do you examine that? Right? How do you, how do you uh, vet that to see if it was true? Well, see, that's very dangerous language for Christians to be using. In fact, Kenneth Hagin uh, often says, Jesus spoke to me, and then... You can go anywhere on the Internet, Google these things, and find out all these quotes and all these things that these word of faith preachers, prophets, or they claim to be prophets and claim to be apostles, are saying. And then he said this, if you can't find what I say in the Bible, that's okay, because Jesus came and spoke to me and gave me these teachings. So he claimed direct revelation from God. There's also a book written called Experiencing God by uh, Henry Blackaby uh, and Claude King, and they say the premise of that book is that suggests that the, the main way that the Holy Spirit leads believers is by speaking to them directly, extra-biblical words. So they believe that there are still prophets receiving direct revelation and they believe also that they're still apostles receiving direct revelation and giving more of the word of God. Now, those who deliver direct revelatory words from God, according to Scripture, must do so without error. Otherwise, they prove themselves to be liars. In spite of Scripture's clear warnings and consequent dishonor to the Spirit of God, charismatics have made presumptuous prophecy a hallmark of their whole movement. They have created a fertile breeding ground for false prophets, granting a platform of authority to anyone who's brash enough to stand up and claim to have received direct revelation from God, no matter how ludicrous or blasphemous their words could be. Benny Hinn, very top of the pile, uh, word of faith preacher, uh, gave many numerous prophetic utterances, none of which came true. Fidel Castro, he prophesied would die sometime in the 1990s, didn't happen. Homosexual community, he prophesied in America, would be destroyed by fire before 1995, didn't happen. A major earthquake would cause havoc in the, on the East Coast uh, before the year 2000 didn't happen. So charismatic 
theology incorporates enough of the truth to gain credibility, but in mixing the truth with deadly deceptions, it has concocted a cocktail of corruption and doctrinal poison, lethal, lethal fabrications of what they say is truth that affects the hearts, the souls, and the minds of people. People are at stake here. So many in the charismatic movement, their teaching have really spilt over into the general population of a broader scope of evangelicalism and people in in that uh, movement too and even people that you know are convinced that God speaks to them directly all the time because you hear people say all the time God told me God told you I say well how, how do you know God told you how do you know what you say is true how do you know it's coming from the spirit of God see it has become a favorite cliche of experience in that really it, it's it's everywhere you go and so to equate personal impressions and imaginations and intuition with divine revelation is is really a recipe to greatly be in the wrong and they often are because they open the door to satanic attack and deception that's where satan steps in He's been moving all along, but charismatics say that the prophets today and in the New Testament were second-tier prophets who spoke a form of prophecy that was fallible and non-authoritative. So they say that sometimes they made mistakes in their report of divine revelation, thus they were not required to meet the standard of Old Testament prophets and biblical authors, no need, in other words, to have 100% accuracy. Now, so they use biblical terminology to refer to non-biblical teaching and non-biblical practices. There's only one fatal, fatal problem with this logic. It's not true, and it's not biblical. False prophets are... Fallible prophets are false prophets, and false prophets who are fallible are no prophets at all. There's no distinction made in Scripture between the prophets in either testament. The definition of prophet has not changed in the New Testament. There is not two kinds of prophets. False prophets and false teacher teachers represent a genuine threat to the body because there are no such things. There, how could you have prophecy filled with errors? You, you, you don't know what's true. See, all prophets in the New Testament were subject to being tested. 1 Corinthians 14, 29 tells us that the prophets were subject to the prophets. In other words, the prophets, whoever gave a prophecy was to they were to be tested as to what was true and what was not. If it was not true or if it was connected with error, it was thrown out as false. It had to be accurate, 100% true. So these modern-day so-called prophets do not hold up under biblical scrutiny. They do not. There's a second thing within their doctrine 
and it's that they claim to speak things into existence. Maybe it started way back with William Essex Kenyon, which was picked up by all the Word of Faith preachers, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn. And let me give you an example. Just recently, Kenneth Copeland at his church, the Eagle Mountain Church in Texas, spoke at spoke at the coronavirus and declared it gone. He did this publicly. And then Copeland commanded the vaccine a vaccine to be made immediately. Now that doesn't make sense. If if you declared it gone, why would you have to also declare a vaccine? Then he turned to George Pearson's, I that's how you say his name. I think he's the brother-in-law of Copeland on the platform and said to him, 12 noon, at 12 noon today, the 29th of March, it's over. He killed the virus COVID-19. Copeland prophesied to kill the virus COVID-19 on March 29th, 2020. On that particular day, 144,321 cases were in the United States, and unfortunately, 2,542 people died. And then on April 2nd, uh, he that's about four days later, he commanded a heat wave, possibly thinking that the virus is not supposed to survive in the heat. Uh, that's how kind of he answered the critics. And on April 2nd, uh, the high of that day was 67 degrees in Texas, and on April 3rd, it was 42 degrees, which is below average. The heat wave never came. On April 10th, 502,876 502, people, cases of coronavirus in the United States and 18,747 deaths uh, happened. In other words, flat-out lies. Uh, but people don't call out. Keep, people do not ex, uh, really call them out in the movement. The reason why is because you're not supposed to call people out, not supposed to name names. You're, you're, not, you're not supposed to criticize. And so if all those things are in their minds already, they're kind of in con- they're controlling people about that kind of stuff. It still goes on. And then, of course, why do they think that they could command these things and claim things and call things in and out of existence? Because they have a little doctrine, uh, a doctrine called the little God's doctrine. And the little God's doctrine, according to Creflo Dollar, said, another word of faith uh, preacher, charismatic preacher, he says, I am going to say something. You are gods in this earth, and it's about time we start operating like gods instead of a bunch of powerless humans. See, Dollar also said we can speak things into existence like God does. So this is a doctrine that is, is embedded in their, their teaching, right? Where does he get that from? Well, his rationale and the scripture that he uses to back that up is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, where it says, then God says, let us 
Make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that is on the earth. And verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. See, Creflo Dollar concludes that from this passage, if everything produces after its kind... If God made man, you're God. You are God. The real me, he said, is just like God. So if they think that, if they think they're little gods, then then they can call things into existence like God does. They can call their own reality that they want in their mind into existence. They, that's why they have this uh, imagining. If you imagine something, you can have it. If you claim something, you could have it. Well, it all comes out of this particular teaching that the word of faith teachers assert that believers are little gods who can speak their worldly desires into existence. Paul Crouch, head of the TBM network, a national television network, said, I am a little god. I am one one with him. I am in covenant relation." I am a little God. Kenneth Copeland similarly told his listeners, you're all God. You don't have a God living in you. You are one. Now, these are statements that sound like they're coming from the Bible, but their arrogance becomes evident when you examine them according to Scripture because this is nothing but satanic stuff. Satan wanted to be just like God, and he got banished from heaven, for the Bible says there is only one God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. See, that is a very dangerous doctrine, but you can see how it backs up a lot of things that they do and a lot of things that they say. In fact, the origins of these movements, is, it can be rooted in, in metaphysical thought. You know, metaphysical thought's a big word, but it means beyond the physical realm. That's all it means. It's really a cultic doctrine wrapped up in Christian teaching. The bottom line is that they have a different gospel. They have a different Jesus. Uh, this, this is nothing but New Age teaching. So, see, I said all that for this reason, because we are to call people out. We are to mention things that are not biblical. We are to, at times, mention names and bring people to the place where because the people are listening to the Internet they're listening to these kind of people. They're out there all over the place, and they are definitely teaching people. You have somebody like Sarah Young, who in her devotional book, she yearned, she thought she yearned for more than, she thought the Bible was not enough. So she decided to listen to God pen in hand, writing down whatever she said, I believe he is saying to me. And she's become very popular and you have all this, you know, God told me, God said this to me, you know, listening, prayer, uh, and all these kind of things are going on and being propagated and moved by this very large movement. 
the Word of Faith movement. Now, that moves me back to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 1. The first thing, threat to the church, is that false teachers cleverly teach destructive heresies. Just gave you a little bit of an example of that. Second point is that false teachers deny the God of the Bible. They actually deny the God of the Bible. Do they say outright they deny the God of the Bible? No, they don't do that. Um, But they sure do do it in a very subtle way. See, the first question that we should ask is, is your God the same God as the God of the Bible? Because if he is the same God, the God of the Bible, you would obey him. You would love him. You would follow after his word as the only rule of faith and authority. So this passage, if you notice in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, even denying the master who bought them. See, these false teachers deny the God of the Bible. This passage is not saying that Jesus purchased salvation for everyone, even for those who end up in hell. See, there's nothing here about the blood of Christ or the purchase of redemption. Peter actually uses master and Lord here in this passage, and it's not the regular word he uses for Lord, which is the Greek word kurios, but it's the word despotes, right? And, of course, that means sovereign master or creator. It gives the idea of ownership, especially the ruler over his household. Like it says in 1 Peter 2.18, servants be submissive to your masters. Same word being used there, that a master has authority over his slaves or his servants. Now, coupled with another word in the passage, the word bought is a word that means to purchase, but it goes along with the word master or despotes because a master is the one who purchases his servants, which is, precisely, is really precisely how a householder did acquire servants or slaves. In other words, a despot who buys something owns it. That's what it's saying here in this passage. This passage is not teaching about the atonement of Christ at all, but that these false teachers are denying the Lord God, their creator, who made them, and as creator, he owns them. So false teachers claim to be part of God's household, but refuse to submit to the master of the house and the master's word. And how do they deny the Lord? They deny their sovereign master in that they don't obey him. They also denied their sovereign master in their teaching by adhering to false teaching and adding to his teaching and taking away from his teaching. And, And, of course, that means that the word of God is not the measure of what they teach. They just teach what they want to teach, and it's never examined or tested. Also, they deny the sovereign master by their behavior. We're going to find that more out in Scripture See, they, by their sinful lifestyle, that their false teaching ends up not living, you're not living a holy and godly life, you're living actually a sinful life. 
So they are actually, they are living in contradiction to his life and his teaching. The life that God gives his true believers, they're living according to that and not according to what the Lord said uh, in the word of God. They're not living to according to what God said, but according to what they think. Actually, the passage in Jude that was also read this morning, it says in Jude chapter 1, verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. There's that denial again. They deny him by their behavior, by their teaching, by their lack of obedience. It means that they're not saved. They don't know Christ. They don't have the Spirit of God living in them. So why would they love the Word of God? They just know what Christianity can do and how it can be marketed, and they can make a lot of money and have a lot of power and influence when they do that, and that's evident all around us. Now, that brings me to one last thing this morning, and that's found also in verse number 1 of chapter 2 of Second Peter. It says, secondly, they, they deny the master who brought them, and then notice bringing swift destruction upon themselves. The third thing is that false teachers bring certain imminent judgment upon themselves. So the destiny of false teachers and those who follow them is destruction. Their, teaching, their teachings are destructive to others. And now that destruction comes back on them. They are the ones who deny the coming judgment and stress how long the world has continued as it is, as it says in 2 Peter 3, 4, where they say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, in Scripture, it says these teachers are going to be judged. They're going to be under God's condemnation. In fact, it's telling us here they already are under God's condemnation. Now, you notice in the Old Testament, when false teachers were called out and identified, they were killed on the spot. That doesn't happen today, right? But it doesn't mean that God will not judge them. It just means that God is tarrying. See, their judgment is imminent. In other words, their condemnation has long been hanging over their heads. And just because they don't believe that there will be a judgment doesn't exempt them from that judgment. See, they are marked out for this condemnation, as I just read in Jude. See, the Lord is just delaying judgment for the rest of those who are not yet saved. Look what it says in 2 Peter 3.15. It tells us right here in this passage of Scripture, it says, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. See, God is tarrying and patient because he's bringing in the rest of his sheep with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But judgment is coming, and it will take place. So what do we do? What do we to do? 
from now until then? Well, number one, in, by way of application, we are to call these people out and not be afraid to do so and to warn others uh, that possibly are influenced by people like Joel Osteen, all right? And those people are very popular and right up front and write books left and right and, and are, are, are the most uh, sold books in many Christian bookstores, all right? We are to warn people of not getting involved with their teaching because their teaching leads to destruction, and we need to name them and call them out. Secondly, we need to separate from false teachers. That's what we need to do, and we need to help people uh, who are involved in it to separate it, and we must separate ourselves in it. We can't dabble in, in false teaching and stay there. We have to separate ourselves from it. It even says, remember what it says in Ephesians 4, in verse number 14, it says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speak the truth in love. We ought to know the truth. And that would be the last application is we are to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the book, uh, the epistle of Second Peter ends but grow, verse number 18, chapter 3, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That how is the book starts. That's how the book ends because the great threat that is before us, the way that we fight against it is to grow ourselves in the knowledge and wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you are growing in that knowledge. Next week we'll look at uh, or the week after, whenever we come back to this passage, we'll look at the next uh, things that are mentioned in the Word of God about the threats to the church. And remember, I did mention uh, only three of them. There are three more, uh, and then I'll bring that up next time. Let's pray this morning. Lord, thank you today for your Word. Lord, I must admit that Preaching, often, sometimes your word is hard. Um, because, Lord, all of, us have, uh, all of us have issues as, as your, your people. And, Lord, none of us are perfect. So I pray, Lord, even as we look at these passages of scriptures that have to do with false teachers, I pray, Lord, that you would even convict us when we think things wrong. And when we are not handling accurately the word of God, or that we are doing exactly what we ought not to be doing as believers in our lifestyle, in our behavior, we're not acting like Christians. I just pray you would always make us sensitive to be examining not only what we think, what we're receiving as the word of God, but Lord, also how we're living. Holy Spirit, you change us. You, you make us new, and part of that newness is not only newness in thinking, but newness in behavior, and newness in speaking in behalf and on behalf of the Lord in a proper and a, uh, a holy manner. And so I just pray, Lord, take these things, convict us of them, and allow us to use the Word of God accurately and be ready for the threat. That is all around us. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's sing our next song, our last song.